This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a thousand miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. Today's episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that helps launch and accelerate careers in business roles in tech. Join one of Skillful's upcoming cohorts to learn what you need to know and from who you need to know. Skillful recently released their core sprint for January. Their core sprint is great for business generalists, anyone looking to get into biz ops and build their SQL and problem solving skills. They also have two additional sprints that will be dropping soon. Their strategic finance sprint for finance professionals looking to learn how to level up their experience for a strategic finance role and their product strategy sprint for professionals who currently work cross-functionally with a product team or if you want to understand how product strategy and business strategy intersect. No prior product experience is required. So early bird applications for their core sprint, that's the one geared towards business generalists, are now open. Use the exclusive code Early bird 2021 if you apply before December 1st. Head to joinskillful.com. Also, it's located in the show notes before December 1st for access to an exclusive early bird pricing. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. During the holidays, we're releasing highlights from 2021 every day during Hanukkah and during the 12 days of Christmas. Today's episode is a highlight of my conversation with Denise Woodard, who is the CEO and founder of Partake Foods. Partake Foods produces super delicious cookies made with real, healthy, and safe ingredients that everyone can enjoy. They're gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, and free of the top 14 allergens. And I must say, they are super delicious. I always buy Partake Foods whenever I'm at the grocery store. What attracted you to the wonderful world, the crazy world of CPG? And how did you kind of go about getting a job working in a big corporate at, uh, at Coke? Sure. So I think the thing that I love about CPG is seeing how a brand can have such an effect on people and like how create like whether it's like a 
packaged soft drink when I was at Coca-Cola, like how it can inspire moments of happiness and also see like how brands can do so much to inspire goodness in the world through social mission efforts. And I like the fact that it was like tangible products that I was working on. I feel like I have a lot of friends who work in tech and I don't fully understand what they're doing a lot of the times. Like cookies were not that complicated um, or beverages. And so I started my career at Coca-Cola in 2008 and I had a variety of sales and marketing related roles across their trademark brands, across multicultural marketing. And then my last role there was working in their Venturing and Emerging Brands group, which is this amazing experience where I got to work on a lot of the entrepreneurial brands that Coke had either acquired or invested in, like Honest Tea and Zico Coconut Water. So I'd imagine maybe you got the the hint of entrepreneurship maybe by that experience of working with some of the acquisitions or part of the product development team. What I guess sparked you um, to start Partake Foods? Sure. So I think I had always had like a very entrepreneurial spirit. My dad's an entrepreneur. I always had a side gig. Even when I worked at Coke, I had an eBay business that did six figures. I had a ticket brokering business at some point. So I always had like something going, but never anything scalable that was worth leaving my career for. And then my daughter came along and she's six now, but right around her first birthday, we learned that she has a lot of food allergies. She's allergic to tree nuts, eggs, corn, and bananas. And Partake came to be in the summer of 2016, or at least the idea came to be, um, when our nanny, who has some equity in the company, was tired of hearing me complain about all the things I couldn't find in the allergy-friendly snack space and challenged me to do something about it by starting a company. Wow, that's amazing. So, so, so very inspired by your child. That's awesome in terms of just seeing and understanding that there wasn't options that were there for her, especially sweet options. What were your first steps to starting Partake? And when did you realize that, hey, or, or was it maybe off the bat that you realized that, hey, this, this could be something big? And maybe how did you kind of navigate leaving the decision to leave Coke? Sure. So it was kind of something out of a movie. Uh, the following weekend, we were in line at the zoo and I was telling my husband, Jeremy, you won't believe the idea that Martha had. She thinks I should start an allergy-friendly food company. And this guy who was in line in front of us turned around and was like, it sounds like you're on to a great idea. Are you familiar with the Start Something Challenge? And the Start Something Challenge is a startup uh, pitch competition for businesses that are based in New Jersey. It's sponsored by Blackstone and J.P. Morgan um, and a group called the Rising Tide, uh, Rising Tide Foundation. And so I entered the pitch competition. That was a Saturday afternoon. The deadline to enter was like that Monday at midnight. I incorporated an LL. LLC, which I named Vivi's Life LLC because I didn't really understand what we were going to do other than make Vivi's life easier, my daughter. Um, and I entered the competition with an idea and we won. And so that gave me some confidence. But what it also gave was local press. And the last thing I needed was Coca-Cola to see me in the news, like local woman starts allergy friendly food company. So I had to scramble to tell my boss and the leadership team what I was doing. And the verdict that came down was you can do what you want in your spare time. Um, but once you have an actual product that you're selling, there's a conflict of interest there. And so it was such a blessing in disguise because that gave me the kick in the butt that I needed to know that I would have to leave my job. And so I left Coke in August of 2017 once we actually had products to sell. But I spent the next year moonlighting, working up at the crack of dawn, working seven days a week, um, trying to find out where we were going to make the product and how we were going to make the product. So those were the two things I needed to tackle first because I didn't want to leave a career that I loved unless I knew we were starting a scalable business. That's great. How did you also approach on the brand and marketing side um, very early on? What were you going for? Sure. So I wanted to create a brand that satisfied the needs that I, like the white space that I felt 
that existed when I was looking for products for my daughter. And so the places where I felt like were, there were gaps were finding a product that tasted good, not just good for allergy friendly, but just good, um, that had ingredients that I could actually understand that I felt good about giving to her. And that came from a brand that was cool enough that people without food allergies would willingly eat it. I think one of the things with food allergies and dietary restrictions is you often feel excluded and you often feel isolated because you can't participate or pun intended, partake in social events because you're not able to eat the foods that are served. And then when you bring something that no one else is aware of because it's a food allergy product, for lack of better words, it makes you feel even more isolated. And so I wanted to create a brand that made products that tasted good, that had ingredients you could feel good about, but that appealed to people with or without dietary restrictions. Through hundreds of demos, we started to realize there was a really high barrier to entry with the food allergy consumer. So they weren't trying the product anyway because they we weren't in thousands of stores yet. They hadn't heard about us in their local groups. And, and so thankfully, there were these much broader consumer groups that were early adopters, moms who needed a school-safe snack, even if their kid didn't have food allergies. It's like health-conscious millennial customer who just wanted a cookie that tasted good, that had ingredients they could understand. And then lots of other underserved and underrepresented communities outside of those with food allergies, women, minorities, people who wanted to support a Black-owned business. And, and so through the, the hundreds of demos that we did pre-COVID, we were able to understand who was adopting our product and why they were. And food allergies was not like the thing that came up over and over again, surprisingly. But that's also a good thing, right? Yes, that's what we wanted. How did you approach the launch of Partake Foods? Were there specific sales channels that you were in or about to be in? What was the approach there? I wish I could say it was more sophisticated, but it was me pulling up to a storage unit in Jersey City um, and filling up the back of my SUV with cookies and driving to a hit list of natural food stores across the city. And I sold cookies out of my car for about nine months and did demos nearly every day to understand what was driving consumers to buy our product, how we stacked up against competition. Because I think I knew with not much of a network in VC and without any kind of individual family wealth, that it was going to be really hard for me to raise money. And so I couldn't make any mistakes that would be so big that they'd put me out of business. So I needed to make sure that I understood the foundational elements of the business. And so I wanted to start small. So there was no splashy launch, which was a little defeating. Like you, you read these stories on like a lot of the industry trade publications about, you know, a company launches in this huge chain or with this huge amount of funding. And so it kind of felt like an outsider looking in because we didn't have those things, but I think it made our, our business stronger to, to not have those. When did you decide that, hey, Maybe we need some funding. Uh, we should maybe raise around or or start to meet investors. When did it make sense in order to do so? So it was after I had emptied my 401k, sold my engagement ring, and maxed out all of my credit cards. And so we bootstrapped the business as long as we possibly could. And then we went out and raised a friends and family round. We ended up raising around $400,000 that came in over the course of probably six months and came in, you know, five and $10,000 checks and from friends and colleagues and former colleagues and just like a wide group of people in our network. And that's what gave us the money to continue to scale the business. At that point, we had gotten acceptance into a region of Whole Foods and into Wegmans. And so it was getting more expensive to run the business. And I couldn't do all the demos myself at that point. And so like we had to, to raise some money to be able to support the growth. Wow, that's amazing. What were maybe the biggest reasons why an investor would, uh, would pass early on? You know, that was the thing that was most frustrating. Nobody really ever gives you a no. It was just like a not right now or 
come back after you hit this threshold or like, and there was also like, then when I did get a no, it was like feedback that was so polarizing. Some people would be like, the category is too crowded. And then other people would be like, category is not big enough. And so like, I don't, there was no like overwhelming reason that people were not investing. How do you think about, since you also partake, it's a very inclusive product. I love it, right? I don't have any food allergies along with hundreds of thousands of others. How do you think about the actual placement on shelf for Partake? Sure. So when we're given the choice, we tip, we tend to prefer to be in the conventional cookie aisle um, competing against some of the, the bigger folks. And so when you see us on shelf at somewhere like Target, we sit on the same aisle as Oreo and Chips Ahoy. Um, I prefer to be in that set. I think oftentimes people have a negative connotation with allergy-friendly or gluten-free. And so someone like yourself might not be going to check out the gluten-free cookie aisle because you might think they all taste like cardboard. Um, so if we can get eyes in the, the bigger, more busy cookie aisle, um, and then people can see our ingredients or get drawn in by our packaging, we think that we have a better shot and we think it better aligns with our brand proposition. So when did Marcy get involved and how were you introduced to Marcy Venture Partners? Sure. So Marcy invested. We closed our seed in the summer in June of 2019. I met Marcy in the spring of 2018. So I was still selling cookies out of the car. So they, we are definitely too early for them, but they um, were believers in our mission and our products and, and me and were not turned off by the, the lack of splashy launch, but I think instead appreciated the hustle mentality of growing the business brick by brick. And thankfully our business continued to meet the metrics that I suggested we were, were going to happen. And so they came on board as our lead investor in our in our seed. And then, uh, reinvested at our series a and we were introduced by Mar to marcy um through one of our friend uh, friends and family investors who's in the music business uh, had a, a connection to one of the partners at marcy and, and that's how we got introduced what's maybe some advice that you might have for those that are thinking of starting a a food and beverage business when it when it makes sense to go omni-channel from the very beginning or or try to do you know be digitally native and only digitally native Sure. I think the thing that scares me about digitally native, I think, is how some of the advertising platforms through iOS updates can switch the game up on you very quickly. And like you can be in for a big surprise from a cost of acquisition perspective or, or whatever it may be. Um, because of my experience at Coca-Cola, I felt better equipped on the retail side of the business. And as much as I love a good online shopping experience, I don't think people are ever going to stop shopping in a store. And I think, um, you know, in showing to potential investors our business, like I think it's really healthy to be able to say that we can win across all channels, not that, you know, just certain people are buying us or just certain geographies, but really being able to show the breadth of how our brand can appeal to, to multiple consumer groups is really important to me. And as an in inclusive brand, I think it's really important that we're as accessible as possible. And so when I think about some of the retailers that we partner with or that we're partnering with for 2022, it's important to me that people everywhere at an accessible price point can get our product. And when we are on our website only because of fulfillment costs and shipping costs, we have to sell the product in larger numbers and not everybody can afford to spend $30 on cookies at one in one go. And so if somebody can go to their local retailer, no matter where they are in the country and pick up a box of cookies for $3.99, I, I, I feel better about that. I mean, th those are all excellent points. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had with John Sebastiani, who's the founder of Crave. 
And what he was saying how for brands that don't start with like, you know, omni-channel from the very beginning or in retail, they're not priced for wholesale. You know, they're only priced for digitally native, which is very different. It's it's a bit of a different beast. And then once you want to expand to retail, then your pricing can get um, a little bit more complex. So I think maybe an advantage that, that you certainly had, and obviously you came from Coke, which is the king of of retail. But I think like a advantage was you knew how to price for retail from the very beginning. And I think that was one of the reasons we started small though, because I think Coke had a lot more sophistication than I had or have access to. And so I figured if I could start in a small set of stores, I could understand how often do we have to promote? What's our trade spend really going to look like? How much are distributors going to want to take? Are distributors running different deals with different customers? What does that look like? It gave me some time to kind of get my sea legs under me to understand how to price appropriately for for different channels and, and for different pack sizes. And I think that was an advantage that we had from starting in a really small way. That makes a lot of sense. I think being constrained sometimes can, you know, also give you so much opportunity because it allows you to go so much more with your dollar in a lot of ways or think creatively how to do so. Since you grew Partake really fast, I know it's still growing very, very quickly. How do you approach hiring and building the team for Partake? Sure. So, you know, I think I've seen really great examples and really poor examples of leadership along my journey. Um, and so I do- definitely try to model the former. I feel like a lot of my thoughts around building culture and leadership come from my six-year-old and like the sign she has around her school, like welcome, safety, respect. Like it doesn't feel like rocket science necessarily. I have seen though, as the team's gotten bigger, we're 15 people now, mostly hired during the pandemic. At the start of 2020, I was the only full-time employee. Like it's really important to walk the walk of the culture that you're trying to build and to be really deliberate about that and to make time for it. And I think that's a challenge as a founder and a leader, particularly when the business is growing quickly, because you want to focus on the retail sales and you want to focus on the operations, but you have to focus on your people. Um, And so for me, that's making the time to do that. It's investing in leadership training for myself, for our leadership team, for our junior employees, to make sure that they're best equipped to do their jobs. It's creating an environment where people feel safe to, to celebrate the wins and to admit the losses and to show up as their full self. And so it's just... Uh, trying to create a really happy place that I want to work at, um, but also understanding that that's going to take a lot of work and that there's going to be speed bumps and that it's going to take time to, to really build that culture. But I think a lot of it starts with the founder when it's a, a founder-led, founder-run business. And so, you know, how do I show up in that way all the time? How do I show my vulnerability to the team? How do I also model, like, you know, what customer service looks like, what excellence looks like, and, and just trying to be really co- cognizant of that. What's the future of Partake? What is next on the horizon? Are you going to go international? I think there's an opportunity to. I don't think this is necessarily the time that we're going to do it. Um, In our Series A, uh, Lotus Bakeries, um, the maker of the Biscoff cookie, came on board as an investor. And so I think we have partners around the table who understand how to grow internationally. Um, One of our board members and my former boss at Coke is the chief growth officer at Beyond Meat, and they did that beautifully. I don't know that that we're there yet. We're in about 7,000 stores with our cookies. There's 
quite a bit of white space to tackle there. I think um, something else that Coke was a master at was price pack architecture. I feel like meeting our customers where they live and work and play in different pack sizes is really important to me to grow our brand awareness and to allow more people to try our products. So I think you'll see us pop up in places that aren't necessarily a traditional grocery store or retailer. Um, so hope to grow distribution. Hope that you find us in other channels. We launched a line of baking mixes this year that are available just D to C, but we have some new products going into retail with some of our partners next year and some new distribution coming next year and hoping to continue to, to serve our mission of making products that taste good, that have ingredients you can understand that are allergy friendly and doing good while we do that. What is one thing that you would change about the fundraising process and, and venture capital? I would make it more transparent. It feels like a lot of like, I'm very much a tell it like it is person. And like the, how I mentioned earlier that no one ever tells you no, like I wish people would just say what they were actually thinking, but it seems like a lot of like power dynamics and like games that people play. And like, I wish people would just be more forthcoming in their intentions and, and their like likes or dislikes and just like a bit more transparency. What is the best piece of advice that you've received? I think that there's a couple. One was Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea. I don't know that he even remembers telling me this, but I was at the point where I had like put in my resignation. So I knew when I was leaving Coke and I had our product and I went to him with all these questions about like, what distributor and how do I know who my consumer is? And he was just like, just get started. You'll learn so much from like talking to your customers and just taking baby steps in the right direction. Nothing's going to be perfect from day one. And so I think even now in our business, like as we launch new products and as we go into other channels, like just taking that advice and just taking baby steps, like it's not going to be perfect from day one and learning from the the missteps I think has been really valuable. And then I think one thing I've kind of learned by myself over time is to go where you're celebrated. I think I got so down on myself from all the pseudo knows that I got on the fundraising journey that I like really villain villainized like venture capital and raising money. And then I met Marcy and then I met some of the other phenomenal investors we have. And I realized that venture capital isn't a bad thing. It could actually open your eyes up and give you the resources you need to like grow a really impactful, amazing business. And if you work with people who actually value you and your company and your mission, it's not necessarily a negative thing. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Don't listen to everybody. It's amazing um, how everyone has an opinion. Most of the people have never done it and will like tell you like very deliberately exactly how you should do it, but they've never done it. And so don't get me wrong. I have informational calls all the time with people who have done it and done it well. And I take those tidbits of advice, but then I also go with my gut and I go with the data that I have because just what, because something worked for someone else doesn't mean it's the right or wrong answer for you. And so like trust yourself because nobody knows your business better than you do. Denise, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you having me. This was such a wonderful chat. Thank you so much. And there you have it. It was amazing having Denise on the show. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 